Welcome to Off Trail with Erie Metro Parks. My name is Mike Hensley. I'm your host. And today we're going to be talking all about vultures. Who's all excited? Ooh, me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know one person who's excited. Go ahead, Martin. Yeah, I'm pretty excited, yeah. So, honest. yeah, I've, I've held him off on a few episodes uh, of talking about vultures because um, he, he loves vultures um, more than I do, for sure. Um, but we have a special guest on the epi- this episode. He um, definitely loves vultures more than me, that's for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and um, her name is Dr. Morgan Drabicamshire, and she is a research wildlife biologist for the USDA. So, Morgan... Hello. <laughs> we get an air horn already. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it. Um, so before we get into, you know, in depth to what Morgan does um, and some of her research, let's talk about vultures in general. Um, so I'm going to imagine that Martin and Morgan can just take over from here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have a couple questions because I obviously um, – here where we're at in Ohio, we only have two species of vultures. Um, but for you guys, how many species are there in the world? I don't, I don't know. I don't have an accurate number for that. So there are 23 vulture species in the world. And yes, there are two here in Ohio, the black and the turkey vulture. And those are extant species. But um, North America actually used to have a lot more vulture species. So there are upwards of 18 different extinct vulture hmm. species that used to be wow. in North America. I did not know that. I didn't know either. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the vulture diversity used to be a lot higher here in North America. But um, with the megafauna extinctions, um, that kind of like took away their food source. So hmm. the other vulture species that's in North America, the California condor, is only found in very specific regions in North America because it was able to persist on these large carcasses from marine mammals that wash ashore. So you see them a lot out west. Um, yeah. The next place to go would be India. They have mm. a great diversity of vultures there. And uh, those vulture species also experienced a great uh, decline in the 90s um, from a non-steroid anti-inflammatory drug, um, diclofenac, which the people over there were giving to livestock as it helps um, alleviate the pain associated with arth- arthritis in animals. But they did find that this was toxic to the vultures. And so they experienced these really um, catastrophic declines of vulture species there. And in, in turn, a number of the species there are critically endangered. And like the declines are to the extent that some of the species, 99% of the populations in some areas were wiped out by this drug. So Martin had, had done uh, the International Vulture Awareness Day program. Yeah. And that's when I first learned about how many were critically endangered, mm. and I was blown away. Yeah, I created a, a PowerPoint, which I didn't end up using um, yeah. at all, but just creating it, I had a slide for each of the vulture species in the world and their IUCN red list classification. And I think that's really when it hit you and Cheryl yeah. about how many are endangered or critically endangered. Yeah, I, I just had no idea. Well, because obviously they're not here, so I'm not mm. directly affected or directly seeing them. Mm. And um, not, um, just going back to the diclofenac thing, it wasn't just the vultures that were affected because like what happened when there were no vultures? 
Yeah, so um, the there's a lot of feral dogs in, in Asia, and so they were taking over the role that the vultures were used to do of um, cleaning up these carcasses. So you had a lot of feral dogs around these carcasses and um, consuming that meat, but also um, getting in contact with each other. And that constant contact can result in the transfer of different diseases, such as rabies. So they did see in India an increase in the number of rabies cases in humans. So vultures are, um, they, they help prevent those contacts between uh, mammalian scavengers. See, again, like we talk about in all of our podcasts, it's all connected. It is. If you take, it's like a Jenga piece. Like when you take <laughs> one piece out, like the whole thing's going to fall. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And like, that's all things that we, like, like I said, I'm not connected to. So I would have had no clue um, whatsoever. Yeah, this is all super fascinating. I'm definitely the person at the table who knows the least about vultures at this time. (laughs) And it's just mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Like I did not know like any of this information Mm -hmm. prior to recording. And so I hope a lot of our listeners are, you know, as mind blown as I am right now, (laughs) (laughs) like learning a lot. And I come from England where we don't have any breeding vultures. Occasionally a vulture will turn up in England, but that's like super rare. Like a couple of times it's happened in the last you know, two or three years. So I didn't know anything about vultures until pretty much I moved to Africa. I had seen a couple of species in southern Spain before moving to Africa, but yeah, moving there, it just opened my mind and it it, it was amazing to learn and about how many they are and how important they are and um, they do some really cool things. So Martin, did England at one point have um, vultures or kind of like? I think it's, it had always been like sporadic. Um, I think probably a generalization, but vultures generally don't cross large areas of water. Um, There are some islands that do have breeding populations, but generally not too many. Okay, cool. Um, All right. So what what is the the biggest role that, I mean, obviously we've just seen it from what Morgan has told us here, but you know, what is the major role that these vultures are playing in the ecosystem? So vultures, they're important for nutrient um, cycling. So when they consume the carcasses, they take that. And then um, they have really strong um, stomach acids. And another interesting thing is that they, um, whenever that carrion passes through them um, in their feces, uh, there are some beneficial microbes that are there. And um, that, that was from a study in, in Namibia where they tested the microbes underneath a, a vulture nest compared to areas that were not under that vulture nest. And they found all these good, you know, um, biomes there, basically. Um, the turkey vulture, which is the most common vulture here in Ohio, is also really important. Um, there was one study that looked out the amount of carrion that they consume, and it was and this particular paper, they estimated that um, turkey vultures, they removed um, so much carrion from the environment that that would equate to 700 million U.S. dollars per year. Wow. Oh. And if you think about what happened in India, um, you know, the vultures were um, you know, decimated and the feral dogs moved in. If the turkey vultures were decimated here, I mean, yes, we do have other scavengers, coyotes, you know, raccoons, whatever. But I think for the most part, a lot of these dead carcasses, you know, deer or whatever, would just be lying out there in the fields for long periods of time before anything got to them. I mean, but I mean, when you put a monetary value on it, that makes people care a little bit more because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're oh, like, how definitely. much time are we spending like 
how many how much resources are we utilizing to get rid of these things so yeah fun fact martin and i made a vulture buffet which i'd <laughs> never been up what do you what do you, vulture restaurant restaurant, restaurant. Yeah. uh so the vulture restaurant i have never been a part of but was completely fascinating um so martin and i basically took a truck and we drove around collecting roadkill um not raccoons correct we did not get to mm -hmm, raccoons correct. um and <laughs> we took them to the quarry and um laid them out in the hot sun and uh within minutes wasn't it it I, was I, I don't think so super fast but we we could tell they were watching us as we were dropping these carcasses <laughs> down yeah and and if it wouldn't have been for um some park goers walking by I, i'm pretty confident that that the, they would have landed mm -hmm. um immediately and started to mm -hmm. feast as quick as they could but but, but vulture restaurants is um super important in africa right morgan Mm -hmm. Yeah. Vulture restaurants, they're used in a number of places to provide like a supplemental food source for vultures. Um, these areas, um, these uh, carcasses that are provided there, they are not laced with any of these veterinary uh, medications that we mentioned before. And they also provide lead-free carcasses as lead, um, it can be toxic to vultures. Nice. And so, um, another thing about these um, vulture restaurants is that Unfortunately, poachers in Africa have cottoned on to the idea that vultures tell uh, game wardens where dead animals are. So poachers will quite often poison a, like a huge carcass of, of an elephant or something because they know, you know hundreds of vultures are going to come down and eat that carcass and then pretty much wipe out you know, hundreds at a time. And it's super sad every time you hear those kind of stories. So these vulture restaurants, again, are another area where um vultures can come down and feed i i would hope that they're getting fined but i imagine hunting out there is a lot unfortunately they're not getting found found yeah mm -hmm. which but yeah is a an unfortunately so, these, so they joke. just show up to these massive like essential death piles of vultures correct Am I yeah. wrong? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's terrible. There, there is some great conservation work um, going on now in, in Africa where whenever rangers find these events, that they have these poison response kits with them. So if they do see any vultures there that are still staggering around from the effects of the poison, they're able to administer certain drugs that will um, counteract that, that toxin. And um, yeah, and they'll try to re rehabilitate as many as possible. So Morgan, is there any cases where they have to like take the vultures and rehab them like like in the rehab facility or something like that yes yes uh, similar to here there okay. there are rehab facilities that will take the vultures and um flush the toxins out of them i had a vulture that i was following in south africa cape vulture xo42 that i had tagged and i had a gps transmitter on this individual and i was following its movements every day and at one point it stopped, the transmitter stopped um, moving and it was on a, a particular cliff. And luckily it was nearby a vulture restaurant and I knew um, the, the, the owners of that, of that vulture restaurant. So I went down and um, stayed with them for a few days to try and find this vulture. And we searched and searched and uh, there was one day where I almost gave up, I almost drove back, but I got the GPS location and we rushed down the hill it was, and um, we, we, as you say in South Africa, we bundu bashed through, <laughs> <laughs> through this um, through this forest, and lo and behold, behold we found XO42. 
and I picked him up and he was very, very weak. And um, I put him in the, the university vehicle and I drove back to uh, the major town to take him to a, a veterinarian. And when we got there, the vet did all of these um, x-rays looking at any broken bones or whatnot. He did not find any. And so his conclusion is that it was poison. And so that vulture survived one night and the next day it, it had died. Oh no. So it was very sad, but I, I, I say that we only know that vulture story though, because they had that GPS tracker on it, um, which just shows the value of research. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And quite often you, you know how many of vultures are dying at one of these poison carcasses. But you don't know how many are flying away and then dying elsewhere. Exactly. Yeah. That's, well, so let's transition to, um, Morgan's research. Um, so go ahead and tell us uh, a little bit about what you've done here in Erie County um, to kind of promote Vultures One and, you know, further your research. Yeah. So I now work for USDA Wildlife Services National Wildlife Research Center, and I am at the Ohio Field Station, which is based here in Sandusky, Ohio. We have offices at the NASA uh, base on Columbus Avenue. Um, well, 250. And our work here uh, mainly um, uh, revolves around uh, understanding airport wildlife hazards. So in the U.S. alone, over 14,000 wildlife strikes, that's a collision between an animal and an aircraft occur. And that's only what's reported. Is that every year? That is every year. Oh. That's a lot higher than I thought. Yeah. <laughs> and like, is this, is this in varying size from like the smallest bird to, uh, you know, a, a trumpet or swan? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So yeah. it's a, it's a very interesting topic. Um, and yeah, so we, we do a variety of research here on preventing these, on understanding why these collisions occur in the first place and trying to prevent them. So you recently had um, one of your, you know, big research topics published Correct. Yes. Yes. So this this paper it it's um it it was based here in Erie County and the it was it came out of a question of how can we use unmanned aircraft systems or UAS in airport wildlife hazard management. So UAS are you know also called drones are. And they, they are autonomous. You, you can fly them autonomously or manually, and they come in all these different shapes and sizes. And wildlife biologists are using them in the field for a variety of applications, including population surveys and things like that. Um, but it's also what is the potential that we can use it, say, in an airport environment to disperse uh, birds out of the path of an aircraft. So pre to prevent that collision before it's going to occur. As a lot of these collisions, the ones that um, that are the hardest to mitigate are the ones that are off airport property that are saying like 500 feet up in the air. So that biologist at that airport can only do so much on the ground. So how can they prevent those collisions happening in the air? And perhaps UAS are one way to use that because they do extend our reach. 
But in order to use that effectively, we need to understand how birds perceive them. So what what is going to be considered the riskiest UAS? What's going to get them to move the fastest? What's going to get most of them to move out of the way? And we just don't have that information. So in this study, we were we collected that information. Okay, cool. So we've kind of got the purpose of the study and you had mentioned earlier, you know, how often these strikes happen. Um, so in your research, um, you attempted six methods, correct? Yes. So this, we attempted six different methods and, um, this was to look at how turkey vultures respond to UAS. Now, turkey vultures over a five year period, there were 350 strikes, with aircraft and that resulted in about 19 million dollars of damage and with those strikes (laughs) yeah that's impressive like impressive but also like that's a reason for not just us to care but like people who are footing the bills for Mm -hmm. these kinds of things Mm -hmm. yeah that's like huge justification Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and also an interesting fact the only animal which is um recorded to have collided with a spacecraft was a turkey vulture. So (laughs) during um, one of the launches down in Florida, a turkey vulture um, collided with the spacecraft going up. So yeah, turkey vultures are awesome. They're very abundant here in North America, but their size, whenever they do collide with aircraft, it can result in, in large monetary losses and potentially the loss of human life. Yeah. So we tested, uh, uh, we had three different UAS platforms. We had a a remote controlled fixed wing, just your regular like RC plane. And we had a quadcopter, just a a typical what you would think of with a UAS. And then we also had, it was this really, really cool machine. It's a, it looked like a peregrine falcon. It flapped like a peregrine falcon. It had no propellers on it. And it was this predatory ornithopter. So we had these three different uh, machines and we also had two different flight patterns. So three times two. (laughs) (laughs) So we had six different treatments and the two different flight patterns were either overhead or a targeted approach. And we we wanted to look at which one of these would be the best at dispersing turkey vultures. And we hypothesized, given that this predatory ornithopter, um, given its shape, it might elicit a greater fear response. Mm. Although peregrine falcons do not depredate turkey vultures, eagles can, large eagles can, as well as large eagles can harass turkey vultures to regurgitate their crop contents. So sometimes bald eagles, (laughs) gross, (laughs) you know, bald eagles flying over, sees a turkey vulture with a full crop and he's going to be a bully and goes over and tries to harass him and regurgitate all that Mm. good food. Yummy. I'm going to interrupt there and mention a story I'd mentioned to Mike. I knew you were going to bring it up. I I knew it. (laughs) It was mentioned on two different podcasts that I listened to and it was something called the Kentucky meat shower. Have you heard of that Morgan? I might have. <laughs> Your eyes, Molly, <laughs> went instantly to like, I don't want to know. I don't know. As soon as Martin said meat shower, <laughs> I just like, I cringed a little bit. Not going to lie. So as the name <laughs> suggests, this was in Kentucky. And it was, I think, in like the middle of nowhere, like rural Kentucky. And meat just started falling from the sky. Um, and this was decades ago, maybe even like 100 years or so ago. 
And these guys just had no idea what happened. And like, you know, people have their myths and stories and like they had different explanations. But um, ornithologists think that what actually happened is that this huge group of turkey vultures were feasting on like dead carcasses, maybe deer or whatever. And then something had scared them and vultures will engorge themselves on carrion and, and then to the point where some cannot fly. So when all these turkey vultures were probably you know, scared off from where they were, they flew over these poor little guys on their farm <laughs> too heavy and regurgitated in flight, causing all these big chunks of meat to fall down on them. <laughs> so if you're ever walking anywhere, everyone, and you it starts to... Rain meat. Sandusky meat shower on you. <laughs> you know what's happening. So, so you're when welcome. I, when I first mentioned this story to Mike and I said the name Kentucky meat shower, I, I'm sure he had other ideas of what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. My first thought was don't Google it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do not Google this. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. Please carry on. Oh, that's, I mean, wow. that just, did you, <laughs> he, was, he set himself up for that one. He really did. One of us tries to get a pun every single time, but he yeah. did. I was thinking about that last night. <laughs> That was good. <laughs> that reminds me too. I mean, some of these um, wildlife strikes that occur, uh, there might not be much of the animal that remains on the aircraft. So you need to swab it and, you know, just the blood or the, the feathers that remain. And sometimes you, the strike might occur in mid flight and then they land and they take a swab and it find that they find a deer. And then you're thinking like, there weren't <laughs> any flying deer in this area, but it was actually, it was, Probably it came from a vulture that um, hit the aircraft and then it was picking up both DNA yeah. of what it ate and then what it actually was. Doesn't that have a name? Like the the the, um, the remnants of the, the bird or yeah, animal? Yeah, it's called snarge. So it's it's a combination of snot. Well, that's a fun name. <laughs> snot and garbage. <laughs> Come over here. Give me some of that snarge. That's <laughs> you. Sorry, I snarge. <laughs> Love that. All right, so out of your three, six, um, which one, your six methods, which one was the most successful? So like I said before, we, we hypothesized that this, this predator like UAS would elicit the greatest reactions, but that is not what we found. We found that that was actually the least effective platform. And then it depends on what you consider effective. So we did measure the reaction time of whenever the vultures decided to leave, whenever they were flushed by the UAS. So if you're looking for a faster reaction, it was actually the remote controlled plane that elicited the fastest reactions. But if you're looking at to disperse all of the vultures that are in the area, we found that it was the quadcopter that was more successful in that area. So it was very interesting. And that's why the title mentions that it varies by platform, UAS platform, because we didn't find consistent results with this. So it was very interesting in terms of what we had predicted versus what we observed. Nice. So does this mean that I can take my drone out and start chasing these turkey vultures? Uh, no. Um, this really? <laughs> Are we surprised? <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. Um, no, for this study, um, we had to go through a, a lot of different um, committees and regulations. So um, first of all, I am a Part 107 pilot. That is an official FAA um, 
designation. So you need to have that mm-hmm. to fly a drone, a UAS for your job. And um, also there's something called the American Airborne Hunting Act, which prevents people from uh, harassing wildlife mm-hmm. from the air. And that would also include using a UAS. But as government employees, we're allowed to use these. And um, as this research was directed towards um, uh, protecting health and human safety. So, no. (laughs) I'm not surprised by the answer, but I did want to ask. Well, but it's also important that we let people know that, too. So so that's good. Yeah, we do have a lot of drone flyers. Just that I feel like there's more out there. So really good not to be harassing wildlife. It's definitely becoming more of a common hobby. Yes. In addition, um, if you're flying a drone in our park, you do need a special permit to do so. Mm. so you do. Good to yes. mention. So, so, yeah. Thanks, Morgan. All right. Martin, you want to handle the next question? Um, sure. So aside from like collecting all the data and analyzing it, um, what else goes behind getting a scientific article published? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say that this has been a collaborative effort and – um, I'd like to mention Dr. Travis DeVault from University of Georgia and also Dr. Esteban fernandez Urisik from Purdue and uh, his team there and also the rest of the Ohio Field Station staff. As you'll see that these people are all co-authors on this study. So it does involve a lot of organization. So generally that first person listed there is the principal investigator and they are Um, responsible for organizing the research, making sure all the observers are there on time, that all the observers are trained and they're all on the same page, and then also just all the data collection. And this was a very large study. It was about two months in the field at the Erie County landfill every day. And it was it was a it was so much fun, and it was a lot of information <laughs> that we were gathering. No, many people would say fun for a landfill for two months, but that's I guess that's Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> I was go I was gonna be like, well, that's garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Trash talker. Yeah. So it's it. When you're that principal investigator, there is a lot of pressure of making sure the data is collected in in the way that you want it to. And so you're doing a lot of like double checking of things. And it, it's it, it is a lot of um, stress in that way. And then mm-hmm. after your field work is over, you're like, you just kind of like want to relax because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I'm not in charge of this anymore. But then that's whenever the real work starts. Mm-hmm. And that's looking at your data, analyzing it. Uh, it's that's the fun part too, whenever you're starting to see some of these trends and then writing. Mm. I never knew that I would write this much, but I do a lot of writing. (laughs) And so you go back and forth with these drafts with your co-authors and you deliberate and you discuss different things. And this is a lengthy process. And then you submit it to a journal. And once it goes to the journal, it's then peer reviewed. And those are the, the article is sent to subject matter experts and generally that's anonymous. So, and this might take like a three month period. And then the article is sent back to the co-authors with the, the comments from the subject matter experts. And then you have to deliberate again and review and then um, submit a revised manuscript. And then only after that, you might get the, the joyful message that it's accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. How how excited were you though when it did get accepted? I was so excited. <laughs> I I think I I 
I was thinking about um, the the people that score soccer goals, and they go goal. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I felt. Good. <laughs> how uh, long was that process from the time you like submitted it to the journal to like publishing? So this this particular paper, we submitted it in June of this year, and it was published in November. And this was for data that was collected over the summer of 2019. Okay. So the, that's how long it took from start to finish. And, wow. you know, that's with the pandemic in between and yeah. a lot of other things. So. I'm still tired from it, though. Like, I got tired just listening to all the stuff you had to do. <laughs> Um, which journal was this paper published in? Uh, this was published in Scientific Reports, which is a division of nature. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's like the biggest deal. Like that's yeah. like that's all the one way at the top. That's one that non-scientists have heard of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because when Martin told me, I was like, no way. <laughs> and I'm not a scientist. I was like, no. He's like, yeah, no. <laughs> so, all right. So, Molly, you're up on the next question. Sure. Yeah. So... Whenever research is conducted, there are a lot of different variables that can affect the outcome. And we were wondering, you know, what was one thing that you just did not expect at all during this process? Yeah, so this um, this ornithopter, this robotic falcon, it just was not effective. Like, if you saw it flying in a field, it's flapping, it has the right shape, it looks like a peregrine falcon. But when we flew it at the landfill, there were multiple times when the vultures did not react. <laughs> it just flew over and they did not react That in so many trials that we actually had to exclude the ornithopter <laughs> in some of our treatments. Mm. So then we ended up just comparing the, the remote controlled aircraft to the multi-rotor. So that's, that was pretty surprising. Um, mm. Yeah, that was one thing we didn't expect. You couldn't, you couldn't fool those vultures with that fake peregrine. You just couldn't do it. No, but maybe put googly eyes on, on it next time. <laughs> 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 Can you imagine? <laughs> sharp teeth or something. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, all right, so... Um, what were some of the challenges you faced while conducting this research? Um, like I mentioned before, it's a lot of organization and getting people out in the field. And for this research, I had uh, we had two UAS pilots, myself included, and then we also had an observer. And yeah, I had to make this observer schedule and get all these people. Thank you to all the observers out there. <laughs> um, but it was uh, that was uh, pretty challenging. Um, and then in terms of some of the statistical analyses that we did, it was uh, new for me. So it was a lot to learn. And But I'm really proud of what we ended up doing in the paper as we were as thorough as you can be with our analyses. And I also thank my co-authors for their help with that. So there was there were days where I was like, I, I don't know what's going on with these data. Like, what, <laughs> what am I seeing here? And then, um, but once once we started to discuss, it all made sense to me, and um, yeah, and I am pretty proud of this final product. Awesome, awesome. Um, you kind of touched on it a bit, but um, what was it like working at the Erie County Landfill? It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to all my friends at Erie County Landfill. You guys are awesome. <laughs> I can't wait to come out there again. So the Ohio Field Station has been working there for a number of years as it's an attractant for a lot of local birds. There's vultures there. There's ring-billed and herring gulls. Uh, there's a long-tailed Jaeger. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> that is a very rare bird. And uh, we were there one day and it just flew over and it was awesome to see how the gulls reacted as that's something that that's a predatory species. And yeah, they just all, they just all flushed. Uh, mm -hmm. There were some other great birds there because we were on the vegetated uh, capped landfill, so it was no longer operational. So there was this lovely grassland there with the bobolinks and savanna sparrows, and it was just pretty peaceful. I'm going to bird right after this at the Erie County Landfill, everyone. <laughs> I knew somebody was going to say something like, oh, I need to go there right now. I, I've never Jeez. birded anywhere near there, probably, so that's not true, but not there. Yeah. So, Morgan, what is next for you in regards to this topic? Are there any plans to continue your research? Yes. So, um, I mentioned that there were two UAS pilots with this study. So, I actually flew an Eye in the Sky UAS. So, I flew that over the whole landfill area to record all of our treatments. And so, we have about 100 of these UAS videos. And I mentioned we've we've published this paper on turkey vultures, but we are now extracting the the information for the ring-billed and herring gulls. So although the number of gulls did not influence the vulture reactions, the um, we're just interested to see did the gulls perceive the the UAS as differently than the vultures. So we're actually partnering with Mississippi State University with the Geosystems Research Institute. And Dr. Satish Samiapan and Joe Crumpton are working through these videos. And these guys are computer scientists. So unlike what I had to do and manually watch these videos and plot each each interaction that I was interested in, they have the tools and technology to use computer vision to extract 1,000 or 2,000 gulls from these videos and then individually identify all of them and look at their response patterns to these UAS. You didn't what? feel like doing that <laughs> manually? No, that, that was going to wow. take a long time. 10 years or so. Holy yeah. cow. That seems like so high like, tech. Mm, it, you're not kidding when you say each individual gull, right? Because mm -hmm. I know we're, we're talking hundreds of thousands of gulls. Mm-hmm. Holy cow. That just sounds so tedious. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Nope. Not, it's not really fun. cool. <laughs> I, I, I can geek out about it because the, these guys, I've learned so much from them. So they do this background subtraction first. So they take away the what the landfill surface, the substrate looks like, and then they're able to identify each of these gulls. And then there's a problem, a computer vision problem called multiple object tracking, which then puts an individual label on each one of these gulls. But it, it becomes very complicated whenever they go off the screen because then you don't know, like you lose that ID for that bird. But it's really, really fascinating because this we can get at, not only can we get at um, how they reacted to our treatments, but also just the collective behavior of gulls. I mean, anyone that has watched gulls flocking, what is going on there? Like how, how far away are they from their neighbors? And is this the type of movement that we want at an airport? That's mm. also like, is this going to be too chaotic if we were going to flush a whole bunch of gulls? Are we actually getting them out of the path of aircraft? So this is like research within your research. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. So if anybody's interested, Morgan, in uh, accessing your work, how could they do so? So you can Google um, the NWRC, that's the National Wildlife Research Center, the Ohio Field Station. 
And um, on that webpage, you'll see the history of our field station, as well as you can look at all of our publications there. So the Ohio Field Station was created in this area in 1968, which I think that rings a bell with you guys. Yeah, that's when we were founded. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right? Yeah. I just drew a, like a huge blank. I'm like, yeah. wait, what? I, know, I was what looking at you guys because I'm <laughs> like, like the newbie. Morgan, and I, was I wasn't like, ready for this question. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of like, you know, sister organizations. Aww. Yeah. How cool. Twinsies. Twins. Twins, yeah. But it was originally established in this area to, um, to understand and mitigate bird damage to agricultural crops and then in 1989 which was a great year they started to <laughs> was that the year you were born no <laughs> and so in 1989 that's whenever the ohio field station started to um get into this bird collision research and so we actually have a interagency agreement with the faa the federal aviation administration and they help support and fund this research cool you know, it's interesting that we're in this small town in Ohio. Is there a reason um, that that this kind of research is happening here in Sandusky? Yeah, so the in the 1960s, there were a lot more larger blackbird flocks in this area, and they were taking a heavy toll on the crops in this area. So that's that was the reason why it was established here. But the other awesome thing about being located here is that we're close to the lake, so we're close to large populations of water birds, which are considered a high hazard to aircraft, as well as uh, this is a migratory um, pass-through stopover area. So we also can get numerous species there, and we can use, we can, can conduct field work with with them as well. As well as there's an overabundant population of white-tailed deer here, and we do research on on that species as well. So, out of all the vultures you've seen, which one's your favorite? <laughs> oh, that's such you a can only pick question. one. You can only pick tough one. Question. Oh my dear, I just. I do love the Cape vulture. I mean, it's it's such a gregarious species. The fact that it it breeds on in a colony, but on a vertical colony on a cliff, and that just blows my mind. And they need just, to Google more about this later. Yeah. <laughs> they're just and they're big. I don't. I think that was the the first thing that I really fell in love with vultures is that they're a big bird. You know, you can, yeah, you can use binoculars to look at them, but um, just how big they are, it really exaggerates the their movements, and you can see their interactions really clearly, and um, yeah. And they need some love. They get a bad reputation, too, vultures overall, mm -hmm. so, mm. which, you know. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people think that, you know, some of the ugliest um, creatures in the world, which is harsh. But there are, even within those 23 vultures we spoke about earlier, some of them are beautiful, mm. really beautiful. Mm. It, um, if you're on Google or whatever, search bearded vulture, king vulture, pole nut vulture, whatever is, would you say are beautiful vultures? Egyptian vulture? Mm. All of them. I'm not going to say that they're ugly because if you've ever seen a naked mole rat, that is the, one of the ugliest animals I've ever seen. So <laughs> vultures not even close to that. So. Yeah, and vultures are associated with death. So as humans, when we see a big group of vultures, especially like perched on a building, 
You know, it just brings up these notions of death. And that, mm. that is a difficult subject. And it's even worse, too, if, say, it happens in a cemetery. And say you're visiting a loved one that's mm. that's buried at the cemetery, but you just see this group of vultures there. It, it really might impact you on another level as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, death isn't necessarily always a sad thing. Sometimes it's related to you know, remembering those people. So in some cultures... Um, of the past, I'm not sure if there are still any right now, but some cultures loved vultures because it enabled them to, you know, think about the people that they've lost. Um, and they have a lot of respect for vultures in some cultures. Ooh, rhyming, um, <laughs> vulture culture. Um, that they they believe the vultures can see the future or are super wise and can um you know, be a good omen for a battle, for example. Mm-hmm. Huh, I didn't. I had no idea about that. All right. So now what we're going to do is we do a news article every single episode, Morgan. Um, and we're going to turn it over to Martin. So the news article. <laughs> every time that gets me. Okay. So the, um, the news article I am bringing to this episode is wondrous and amazing female California condors can reproduce without males. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? You go, girls. <laughs> <laughs> so this is um, with the California condors, which um, I'm sure as many people know are um, critically endangered still. Are they still critically endangered? I think at one point there was barely any of them left in the wild due to various you know, events, including lead poisoning and lack of food and persecution um, to the extent that Every California condor in the wild was captured and brought in for reproductive reproduction programs. Um, And while they were doing this and over the the past several years, they have been collecting DNA from every California condor. So they they probably have more DNA samples um, like proportion wise for the California condor than probably any species in the world. And they have been like pairing males and females up and successfully breeding and raising those eggs and chicks. And they found out that these two chicks had DNA that did not match the the male um, or the males that the females, the mothers had come into contact with. Mm -hmm. And the more they looked at these chicks, the DNA matched like all the different loci of the mother um, so their only conclusion from all the DNA analysis was these condors had just you know, basically produced young without any male mm. DNA. That That's fascinating first mm. on the fact that this is a species that was like the brink of extinction, like right there, like probably on its last leg. And then, you know, that they're able to find this out. I wonder... I was curious when you when you first brought this up. This was weeks ago. You brought mm. this article up. Like the second you caught it, you're like, Mike, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, there has to be further research on this as to like the environment that these females are able to do this because they're going to probably try to recreate this at some point to where you know they can do this again. So then they're not reliant on males if something gets worse for their population. Not that it's not already bad. Mm. Well, the research was the saying that you know, it's probably really, really rare, but who knows how many other species this is happening with? Because it happens in reptiles, it happens in like, 
crocodiles, turtles, lizards, mm -hmm. and a few other species where um, females can reproduce through something called parthenogenesis, which is um, without males. But in birds, it's super rare. It's been seen in a few domestic species like chickens and turkeys and you know, other domestic animals. But who knows how many of these wild species are doing this? Hmm. I, I was like kind of blown away at first because at first I thought it was like the only like one of the first birds ever. Hmm. And then you had told me about that there were domesticated ones that had done it also. Hmm. So. so yeah, we're we're um we're not as important as we used to be, Mike. That's that's all I'm saying. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I agree 100. Honestly, I'm gonna tell you the truth. I wouldn't make it without my wife. That's the truth. And it. I mean, from every aspect of my life, I am not able to be a successful human being without my wife. She never listens to these podcasts because if she did, she'd kill me because <laughs> I talk about her all the time, especially on the earlier ones where I made like jokes on her behalf with mm. spiders and stuff like that um, <laughs> that were personal stabs at her. And she'd be like, oh, my God, you told people that. And I'm like, yeah. But uh, yeah, none of none of what I do is possible without her. So. So. Guys, get ready for it because you're no longer needed in the bird world, at least. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. So that's all we have for this episode. Um, we will put um, links on this one to Morgan's research. And we really appreciate you hanging out with us today. And we hope you had a good time hanging out with us, too. Yeah, right. Thank you. We'll see you guys Thanks, later. Morgan. <laughs>